Welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell, returning after a prolonged summer break. The Bristol History Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Bristol Cable. The Bristol Cable is the city's media cooperative owned and created by local people. This week, I met with Dr. Mark Halewood, lecturer in history at the University of Bristol, to discuss what everyday life was like in the rural West Country in the late medieval and early modern periods. Dr. Halewood's work centres on the everyday lives of ordinary men and women and examines the impact of certain historical changes upon them. I began by asking Dr. Halewood how he describes himself and his work. Yeah, I, I tend to describe myself as, as a historian of, everyday, of the everyday lives of ordinary women and men mm-hmm. in the 16th and 17th centuries. And I'm interested in the way that bigger processes of historical change have impacted on or been shaped by people's kind of everyday existence. And I I think I, I got drawn into this area as an undergraduate because like a lot of history students at A-level, I'd studied Hitler and Mussolini and mm. Stalin and very much kind of high politics. And I enjoyed it enough to do a history degree. Um, but then as a, an undergraduate at UEA, in fact, uh, in Norwich, where I studied... I had a tutor who was running a course on the social history of the 16th and 17th centuries, um, and framing it as, you know, this is the history of the, the the bottom 90% of the population that you don't hear so much about. So a kind of classic idea of doing social history and, and, and history from below. And I thought, actually, um, I'm quite... In- it seemed to me this these, these are more... These people are more my ancestors than the kind of high political figures that I'd always studied up to that point. And I thought, mm, yeah, I quite like the idea of trying to get to the ask some of those questions about what these people's lives were, were really like in the past seemed um it was kind of a fairly new idea to me at that stage mm. but also felt quite compelled by that idea of if we all most most of history is just made up of ordinary people doing relatively ordinary things on a day-to-day basis and the big you know, dramatic political events are, are, you know, take up a relatively small percentage of human experience <laughs> For most of human existence, most works of written history have focused on what we now call high politics, the actions of kings, queens, ministers and generals, the alliances and conflicts between nations and states. In 1963, the social historian E.P. Thompson radically shook up the historical profession when he published The Making of the English Working Class. This work sought to preserve the history of ordinary British working people from what Thompson called the enormous condescension of posterity, an elegant phrase which pointed to the fact that most academic historians thought themselves above writing about the lives of ordinary men and women. But even if nowadays social history is not such a new idea, 
the question remains of how best to study people who might have left behind little trace that they ever existed. I asked Dr. Halewood about his sources. That's the fundamental challenge, and it's often the reason that's given for you know, it's these. We'd like to know more about these people, but we can't really study them. Um, what I tend to do uh, increasingly now is look at court material, court records that survive from the 16th and 17th centuries, which was never designed to capture the everyday lives of ordinary people. Mm. These are court cases about theft or they're court cases about sometimes even relatively mundane things like a property dispute, which are you know, the, the, the materials are designed to investigate a particular issue or case. But in the process, lots of ordinary people came before the courts. Mm. Early, the early modern period in the 16th and 17th centuries in England was much more litigious and contemporary society. Something like one in seven households were involved in a court case um, on, a, on an annual basis of, of some form or another. There lots of interaction with the courts. Mm. And ordinary people came before the courts and they were often, most interestingly from my point of view, served as witnesses and asked yeah. to give witness statements. So that tells you, obviously those witness statements tell you a lot about the crime and the case, but then as now, witnesses were asked to say, well, what were you doing at the time of a crime, or what were you doing that day when this incident occurred? So it's a rare occasion where ordinary people are just asked to tell the his, uh, somebody who's making a concrete historical record what they were just doing, what their day-to-day -day business involved. So these records, uh, and you know, they survive in their... I keep revising up what I used to say, or tens of thousands, now I say hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of these witness statements of the 16th and 17th centuries that can be mined for information about everyday activities. So they were never meant to be that. But you thinking a bit creatively about different types of evidence we might use. I think in some ways one of the things that really draws me to the study of this period of history and this type of history is that um, there there is this mass of material. These, you know, for example, these you know, this isn't the only form of evidence, but these court materials are there. But they give you a glimpse onto these people's lives. They don't give you a full, comprehensive, detailed account of the everyday. Mm. So there's a lot of space there for the historian to try and piece together these fragments that tell you about, okay, so you know, some things just never turn up in court records that we know people must have been doing. Other mm. things are overrepresented. Um, you know, for example, um, you get a picture of, of early modern rural life as being very heavily dominated by sheep and sheep thefts because lots of these court cases are about sheep theft. So if you want to know about people's relationship with their animals and where animals are kept and the number of animals people have, you can do all sorts of, of you, know, you can find a huge amount about that. So there's, there's these kind of inconsistencies in, in what's there. But there's stuff that isn't there, things that aren't, aren't made explicit. And you know, for me, the whole craft of the historian is about um, always at its most interesting when you've got a t tantalizing evidence that requires a certain amount of, of imagination and then you see if you you you, know, you, you hypothesize about how you might make sense of, of fragments and then you try and if possible follow that up by testing your ideas against other other sources but for something like you know, studying the everyday lives of, of 
of ordinary people 500 years ago, you're always going to rely to some extent on an imaginative interpretation of, of what does exist. I see. And um, has your work tended to focus on the West Country? Because when you spoke about studying everyday people and these people being more your ancestors, this feeling, is the sense of place also important to you? It probably as much as anything started as a practical decision that, that I was... Um, when I was doing my initially my doctoral research into alehouses that I wanted to identify a series of county record offices to go and look at some of these records and it was easier to do the West Country one so I could yeah. stay with my family and you know, it was shorter travel distances and so on. Um, but I've lived in, in the West Country for, for most of my life growing up in, in Portishead and now living in, in having lived in Devon for the last 10 years. So I have a sense of of the counties and the way that they different parts of the counties are very, very different. Mm. And one of the key things for the key things that shapes everyday life in the past is the importance of different types of economies in different areas. Coastal towns are very different to villages in the Somerset levels, are different to parishes on the edge of Dartmoor or in East Devon. They're very different life depending on the agricultural types of these different areas. And I think you have actually having some sense a developed sense of the, the the places that you're studying is quite important for that mm. process of trying to piece together the fragments. It helps if you actually have a a, you know, a good sense of of a particular area in a particular place and space to to give you that framework. Otherwise, you're dealing in 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 the abstract. And mm. um, so I do having become increasingly important to me to kind of um, link up this study of, of what I'm trying to do with areas that I know about and, and have a, a knowledge of. And you've mentioned uh, your work on, on alehouses. Um, I'm intrigued about that. Is there, uh, is there a reason that you, you were sort of drawn to the topic of, of alehouses, uh, other than for, I don't know, obvious <laughs> reasons, but is this because these were sort of centres of, of, of people's lives or in terms of social spaces? What's... Yeah, I mean, my initial interest in them was as political spaces. So I first got interested in um, the study of sort of ordinary people through thinking about kind of popular politics and getting beyond that idea that, that history is only shaped by the great and the good, but that in fact, in many ways, ordinary people have had an important political role and very often you know, resist uh, you know, resist the authority of their superiors or drive social change through their own efforts. And historians had sort of hinted, various historians of the 16th and 17th centuries had hinted that the alehouse was an important space where ordinary people got together, talked about politics, criticised their superiors, planned riots, mm. um, and that even some of the larger scale rebellions of the 16th century had kind of grown up through a network of people meeting and discussing politics in alehouses. So I first got interested in them as these, as these potentially... Um, as a kind of hub of a subversive political culture. But inevitably, it was a, it was a bit more complicated than um, than I first thought. And part of the problem, again, is to do with what records mm. what records tell us about what ordinary people were talking about in sixteenth century alehouses. And again, we're back very often to court records and legal records. Mm. So what does survive is when people did say things that were very critical of the regime, or what at the time would have been called seditious speech. So somebody did say, you know, hang King Henry, I care not a fart for his laws or something. Then um, we do have some of this surviving because those people are dragged before the courts because the treason laws uh, dictate you can't say things like that about the monarch. 
the problem with those, of course, is the, the reason why they survive is because somebody else in the pub mm. has reported them. Yeah. Somebody else has, has informed the local magistrate that these seditious words were spoken. So what does that tell us about the political culture of the people drinking in these alehouses? Mm. Some of them are expressing radical views. Others are reporting radical views to the authorities. So my, the sense I developed from looking at this kind of material and thinking about it was more that these were places where people talked about politics, but they were places where people argued and debated politics rather than a place where everybody got together and they were all um, radicals on the same page plotting the downfall of the regime, that in fact it was more a place where a range of different political views were 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 fought out and debated in in a sense probably much more like pub conversations would be today people are more likely to to argue about politics than um, than, than, than plot the downfall of the regime together between 1550 and 1650 the number of pubs or ale houses as they were more commonly known doubled from 25,000 to over 55,000 one for every 90 people in the country. Dr. Halewood further relates in his article on alehouses in History Today that in Dartford in 1539, a baker proposed a toast to King Henry VIII, saying, God save King Henry, here is good ale, only for those with whom he was drinking and who were critical of Henry's religious policies to retort, God save the cup of good ale, for King Henry shall be hanged. The baker duly reported them to the local authorities for speaking ill of the monarch. Clearly, pubs have always been shared social spaces for political debate, concord and conflict. And who one drank with in the alehouse, then as now, was an important social signifier. I asked Dr. Hellwood about what it means to study alehouse sociability. In a, in a very basic sense, who who did people hang out with and yeah. why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I say so I first got interested in alehouses in this sort of political sense, but the more I studied them and looked at this material and these kind of court records of of, um, of people, the kind of things people talked about in alehouses, it became clear to me that they were actually much more interesting as a more general social space than, than mm. people weren't just going there for to plot politics. People were going there to, for recreational purposes. People were going there to meet and gather with friends, to in much the same way or many similar ways to to, to the role that drinking culture has played in lots of societies mm. as a way of forming social bonds and friendships and social groups. So I started to get interested in trying to reconstruct patterns of um, the kinds of drinking that people did, but also who people did and didn't drink with mm. because there were lots of disputes about this. The idea of, of there's a, a, an idea in the period of um, keeping company mm. that you go to an alehouse and you keep company with like-minded people and people you want to be associated with, and a very often somebody who whose reputation had come under a cloud for some reason, perhaps they had unpaid debts in the community, might be excluded from drinking with people they normally would drink with, and that might escalate into a brawl, and then that would end up in the court records where the two sides were asked what the origins of this brawl had been. And from that, you could start to piece together a bit of a picture of um, kind of patterns of, of, of who who was drinking with who. I see. And if we're, if we're thinking about, say, uh, alehouses in, in the West Country in, in the Tudor period, in some ways because 
uh, you know, everyone's been to a pub. Lots of people have been to old pubs. You can kind of think of these spaces as, as unchanging. But in what ways would it look different to today? Is it a men uh, fraternising with women? Is it just men drinking and, and talking in these places? What's the... It's not what we would necessarily expect. We would, we would we might assume that these ale houses were very male spaces. Mm. But in fact, um, some of the research that I've done and other historians have done have shown that they were male-dominated and most customers in these places were male. But, but um, looking at evidence from court records that, that, that tell us about people drinking in alehouses, as many as a third of alehouse customers would have been female in the 16th and 17th centuries, mm. as well as women very often running alehouses and working in alehouses mm. because historically brewing had been a form of women's work. So it was the, the, the origins of the alehouse um, lay in the idea that families would actually brew their own ale and beer at home, and this was a woman's job, mm. but then if they had surplus, they might offer it for sale to their neighbours. But then increasingly over time, you got the establishment of certain people started to become more specialised as people who brewed and sold ale mm. rather than everybody necessarily brewing their own at home. So these places that started to specialise in that became alehouses. So very often it was women that were doing the brewing, running the alehouse, serving as the ale wife. So it was a space that had always had women working in it, mm. but it also had a lot of women socialising in it. And that's partly because there were no other places to socialise in mm. a 16th or 17th century West Country village. Yeah, you would have had individual houses, you would have had the church, which would have obviously been an important centre of communal life. But if you wanted to gather with friends and neighbours and relatives for recreation, then going to the alehouse and drinking was about the only option you had. And the same goes for courtship. Yes. How do you meet your future partner in a 16th century village? Well, the young people of the village would go to the alehouse and drink together, and that's how these relationships were, were forged. So it's, it's, it was a crucial social hub. I see. And is there a sense when we're talking about rural communities, I'm, I'm interested as to what um, role maybe class or social distinctions is playing or, or maybe isn't playing? I suppose the thing that, that comes to me is think, well, maybe in a rural setting, those things aren't so important. And if you've got a smaller community, maybe everyone's meeting together because there's no other option. Is that a fair way of looking at it? I think the social distinctions were probably more significant than mm. th than you might expect. I mean, it's certainly the case that if for you know the landowners in a rural community, the gentlemen in the manor house, they wouldn't have been drinking in the alehouse with their no. with their fellow parishioners. You would have had a mix between the sort of wealthier and the the wealthier farmers, the yeoman farmers, the kind of middle class. Yeah, would have been drinking alongside the agricultural labourers and the the smaller farmers, the husbandmen. Um, but actually one of the things I found in studying these patterns of sociability is the, the idea that people in the community went to an alehouse and drank as a collective community is actually a bit misleading because in practice what you can figure out by looking at these drinking companies in court records is people were usually drinking actually in small groups. Yes, I see. So even though a big cross-section of the community might have been in the alehouse, they would have been divided into small groups of four or five and they would have often the alehouses had different chambers and, and and segregated spaces within them. So although everyone's there, they're drinking with their close friends who usually are of the same social status, often of the same occupational background. So women in women drinking in the alehouse are very often drinking with 
um, relatives and kin or with their husband and, and groups of husbands and wives drinking together. So it wasn't all a big mix where everyone was friendly and drinking with everyone. It was no, much more similar, in a sense, to modern patterns of sociability that you might go into a pub and be a, a big cross-section of society in there, but most people are actually in a in a smaller group with people that they already know and are relatively friendly with. And that pattern was actually, even in rural areas, was, was more dominant. It's trying to get an understanding of, of everyday life. One of the things that becomes very clear, especially thinking about these kind of rural communities, which of course would have been the vast majority of the population in this period, probably... Um, you know, in the in the West Country, you would have had Bristol and Exeter would have been the only cities of any of any significant size, and at least eighty percent more, probably more like ninety percent of the population are living in small rural areas, essentially. Um, but that life was um, it, this comes out from looking at the alehouse material. The sense that there was a clear distinction between men existed in the public realm and women sort of stayed at home and were in the domestic realm just breaks down quite quickly when you start finding again through these court records evidence of people going to market or socializing you find men and women are intersecting a lot of the same spaces so i think one of my expectations when studying this society was to find it as being a much more um, straightforwardly patriarchal society where men were very visible and women weren't but in fact once you start getting at these records of of everyday life you find that um, there's a, a rather more kind of mixed picture and it's also the case that with these court records and witness statements that men were much more likely to be witnesses before the courts but again um, as many as a third of the witnesses in these cases were in fact women Mm. if someone had witnessed a crime or a theft regardless of gender you wanted them before the court to give testimony so it's actually um, again a, a resource where women's voices or at least women's testimony given before the court and written down by a court clerk actually survive in numbers that um, that are perhaps much higher than we might expect. It's very difficult to find women's direct writing from this period, especially at the lower social levels, but again they do turn up in these court records. So we can start to unpack these stories of women's everyday activities, everyday life, thinking about what their working lives consisted of, but again, also thinking about their recreational life, their sociability, what, what, to what extent are women socialising, who do they socialise with, and also, obviously, a lot about gender relations in mm. these records, the relationship between men and women. Many of these court cases are about sexual assault or they're about adultery, and uh, the, the church courts in the period in particular mm. are interested in regulating moral behaviour so a lot of these cases are explicitly about the relationship between men and women and are about sex and marriage and so on. So there's a lot of material unlooked for. Not It's not the obvious historical record, but in fact it, there's a huge amount of information about women's lives in the period in that kind of material. When you mention not perhaps it's not as straightforwardly patriarchal as, as one might expect or, or that you were expecting, I suppose mm-hmm. when... If I've ever thought about women's position in this period, it's maybe that I think you've mentioned, say, a sexual assault case or something like that, that it would be difficult for them to operate not with their husband or their suitor bringing that forward for them. Uh, is that fair or are, are do women have, you know, I'm trying to think of maybe 
single women in, in these societies, do they have much agency? Because I guess my feeling is probably that they don't. I mean, it's absolutely right to think, to identify those kind of power, hierarchies of power. I mean, mm. if you were a married woman in this society, that gave you a lot more authority than if you were unmarried mm. and you were you were a single woman. Widowhood is interesting. Yes. Um, widows very often were um, relatively, uh, quite often prosperous in the sense that if they'd inherited their husband's lands and goods and so on, that gave them a certain amount of, of, of clout within within a local area. So th- there are, the, there are obviously, marital status did play a big difference in terms mm. of the amount of, sort of authority and agency that, that women had. But even single women and widows, we do find them using the courts, we do find them, them being able to bring actions and suits. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the number of cases of sexual assault that are brought before the courts in this period and they're not always by married women very often the the victims of of sexual assault are things like female servants and maid servants who are bringing complaints and cases against their their masters Mm. now the odds are stacked against them because it's much easier for a male master who's an established householder within a community to rally around witnesses and have his word believed before the courts compared to an unmarried young female member of the community but a significant number of these cases are brought before the courts that mm. it's not it's not not simply the case that men can just do what they want and there's no recourse or yes, that it's seen as actually perfectly legitimate and fine for these actions to take place yes. the, the existence of these court cases show us there is whilst it's by no means um you know, completely level playing field no. the legal system it is a resource for people that that we think of as relatively powerless, can still use the courts as a mechanism, can still exert some agency through that through that system. So I think that, that there's something interesting about the legal... You know, as I said, so many people involved in legal cases and litigation in this period. Mm. Um, and we, we tend to see the law in that sense as probably relatively distant from most of our lives today. Yes. But it's a really central mechanism across the social scale in this period that and as I say that it, it's not a level playing field but mm. almost anybody can at least attempt to use the legal system to for, for leverage in all sorts of, of disputes from personal disputes to property disputes and so on. It was very interesting and surprising to me to think that the expanding legal system in this period was something which ordinary people felt they could benefit from. One might assume that laws and legal institutions, especially during the late medieval and early modern periods, would serve primarily as props to the wealthy and powerful. But even if this largely was the case, the number of litigation and other suits brought before the courts suggests that ordinary people felt that the law was a tool that they could make use of. Dr. Hellwood again. Yeah, so one of the big stories, that this is something that is is a development of Tudor and and Stuart society. The amount of business that's passing through the law courts is increasing Mm -hmm. quite dramatically in the late 16th and early 17th centuries in particular. There are a number of, this is an area of debate amongst historians about exactly why. Part of it is is about the growth of the state. Okay. So the state in the medieval period, I mean, this is in, in broad brush terms, but is much more um, much more limited, mm. that the state is about the idea of the state maybe a bit grand, that yes. you, know, you have a, a, a monarch whose job is to 
to rule and to um, you know, largely it's a, a case of sort of defence, defence of the people, and then a minister of justice, but but as a, a kind of arbiter of justice in a dispute at a high level. What happens in the 16th and 17th centuries is the state is becoming much larger. It's taking on a wider range of responsibilities mm. and the infrastructure of the state is is being sort of rolled out and developed much more in local communities. Yes. So lots of these local communities, if there's a, a dispute, for example, over a, a local landlord is trying to uh, enclose the commons mm. and the peasants in the village want to pr- try and protect the commons, there are many cases where they pool, t- pool their resources and hire a lawyer and fight this in the central courts in Westminster. Yes, okay. But there are a whole host of local uh, courts that, that people are also using. So the, the, the court sessions become a really important um, aspect of the law. So judges, ostensibly kind of judges who are appointed from the centre, sit in the counties and administer the king's justice in the locality. Yeah. So it's taking what has for many centuries existed at the centre and almost devolving it or putting a smaller scale version of it locally for people to access. So it, it's the state is growing um, and, and the infrastructure of the state is developing and people are taking advantage of it. Mm. It's also a period in which there's very high population growth, mm. there's increasing levels of poverty and inequality so the population growth is driving food prices up. There's more demand on food, which means if you're a wealthy farmer and you own a lot of land and you're selling more food than you're buying, you're making a profit. But if you're a poor farmer who doesn't have much land, actually you're, the rising cost of food is costing you more than it's making you. You get this this process historians call social polarisation, but basically the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So that's creating a lot of social conflict. And very often then when these rich, a richer farmer is trying to enclose some of the land of his neighbours, that creates these kind of disputes. Yes. So there's also, it's a period of, of social conflict and tension, and that's, that gives rise to a lot of these court cases where people are uh, increasingly coming into conflict with their neighbours and making increasing use of the growing apparatus of the state as a way of kind of waging these local battles. What I think is really quite striking about about this about this period is the extent of what historians often call kind of popular legalism, the extent to which even people quite like low down the social scale that we that we might think would think the law was something kind of distant and central and, and complicated and that they wouldn't necessarily have much to do with or understanding of. Even you know, at the lowest social levels, people people know the law. Mm. They know the latest royal proclamations, which are, of course, being read out in church on a Sunday and so on, and they're remarkably well-equipped and informed. Um, and it, it makes it very difficult for... for lo- part of the reason we get these disputes, it's quite difficult for a local lord to just sort of run roughshod over the rights of tenants in an area. Yeah. The idea of rights mm. and of customary rights and the, as the law and the, and the king's justice as a way of... of that the common people can use this as a resource, I think, is is embedded, um, is, is quite deeply embedded, and say that, that there's an increasing recourse to it in this mm. period. But it's surprising how much ordinary people know and understand about 
about the legal system, even to the extent that the, another kind of feature of this is is um, the large scale of petitioning. Mm. So lots of, of parishioners, if there was an issue like this, or even an issue around uh, an alehouse, um, lots of petitions that I've looked at where an alehouse might have been set up in a village and it's unruly alehouse, so the, the villagers petition the local magistrate to have the alehouse closed down. But when they write that petition to the magistrate, the language they use shows they know exactly what the laws are on alehouse licences and what does and doesn't count as a breach of an alehouse's licensing conditions. Mm-hmm. So they don't just send a general complaint to the magistrate, they send a complaint to the magistrate that ticks all the legal boxes that require this alehouse to be closed down. So there's this remarkable level of, of sophisticated understanding of the law and its mechanisms quite far down the social scale, which is something that we we wouldn't expect for this period. Mm. But it's also, I think there's there's still work to be done by historians of of trying to understand exactly how this this knowledge is so widely disseminated and and, and embedded in, in popular culture. I was just wanting to maybe uh, touch on um, dissemination of this work, mm. uh, in particular when you're working on uh, the stories of everyday people. Do you feel a, I don't know, a duty or a pressure to uh, disseminate your work in a, a different way or to, to actually get it out there to people in a way that maybe, I don't know, just the, the normal interactions of, say, academic history of writing a book? Or yeah, I mean... <laughs> Sort of duty, duty and obligation sound a bit sort of onerous. Um, I think most historians want people to be aware of their work and their findings, and not just other academics. But you know, I think a lot of this stuff is important. And there are, you know, as we've touched on, there are a number of surprising things about sixteenth and seventeenth century society. Many ways in which the society is quite different to to how we anticipate it, but. We all have a sense of kind of tra- traditional society, what the olden days yeah. looked like and how things worked. And that informs a lot of our understanding of the way the world we live in today works, I think. And it, it, so it's, it's important, I think it's important that, this, that these kind of findings, they might seem like, well, what does it matter what ordinary people were up to 500 years ago? But I think if, if that changes the way we understand what society used to be like and what society is like today, then I think that's that's, that's helpful for, for kind of shaking us out of some of our assumptions. So I think it's important that it's not just historians who, who kind of hear this message. So I've always been keen to to do as much public lecturing as I can, to try and write in a way that's that's readable. I think yeah. that's a big problem with a lot of academic history is... Um, is very um, written in a style that's not necessarily that enjoyable to read. I've always been been conscious of that, and that's partly fed into uh, my involvement with a with a um, an early modern history blog, uh, the Many Headed Monster, which I started uh, with uh, three other historians about six years ago now, expressly with this in mind that we wanted to try and bring some of our, fi- our this kind of interesting, surprising findings about early modern society to to a wider audience to make some of this more accessible and free because that's the problem that even if you're interested in the academic literature on this academic books are expensive academic journals require subscriptions so we wanted to try and um, it seemed odd to be writing trying to make a case about the importance of studying ordinary people and thinking about the the importance of of, of, um, sort of social history and 
for that to be completely inaccessible yes, to who we would think of as you know the wider public, uh, sort of ordinary people today. So that that blog has been one way in which we've tried to to, to sort of push that that side of, of what we do. And I think I think most historians who do sort of history from below um, also want to do kind of history for a wide audience, not just history about a wide. Yeah, sort of section of the population. Yeah, so. I, I see. And I know something. Um, one of the uh, the posts or articles that you you wrote on that blog, um, you were talking about the the juncture between uh, history and historical fiction. So I wonder if we could just briefly touch on that, mm-hmm. because I suppose if I think of Tudor period or going into the seventeenth century and the Civil War, you know, this is there's recently been some very high profile uh, historical fiction. I guess the Hilary Mantel works. Um, I was wondering what kind of role you think uh, historical fiction has to play uh, in terms of engaging people in history, uh, and if you're positive about it or positive with caveats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah, positive with caveats is probably a good a, a good way to. Fra- I'm a fan of historical fiction. I think the thing all historians struggle with when we read historical fiction about our own periods is the inaccuracies. Um, and, and we get we can often get quite hung up on that, and that can turn us off. Mm. Um, I think that's understandable. You know, that that's part of our job is to to, to say, well, hang on, this is wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think historical fiction play a hugely important role in in getting people excited about and interested in particular periods, and and wanting to find wanting for themselves to find out a bit more about well, how you know how accurate is Hilary Mantel's portrayal yeah. of the 16th century or big uh, publication at the moment, C.J. Sampson's yes, yeah. Shard Lake series, which I actually think are really great. And yeah, C.J. Yeah. Sampson um, you know, has a history PhD. He knows how to do his, yes. his homework. Although I think Hilary Mantel is also very sensitive. Yeah. She's she's read a lot of the, of the history. Um, and if these works can get people thinking about these periods and interested in them and wanting to find out more, more about about the history of them that's good i like it when they try and challenge assumptions though yes. i think there there can be there are you know some historical fiction simply plays to the the gallery and gives people the vision of the 16th century that yes. they they know and love I, I prefer to see something that that tries to kind of shake the reader into thinking actually maybe there's something a bit different about this period than what i was expecting yes. but then i think you know, almost any form of yeah. <laughs> fiction or writing or film or should 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 at least be doing something yeah, to make you it. kind of challenge the way you think about about the world a bit. So I I, I like historical fiction and I think it, it has a um, it, it can be a good ally of of, of you know, academic history mm. and I think more of a dialogue between historians and and the writers of historical fiction would be a good thing. Here, so that historians can understand. Many historical writers of historical fiction, you know, feel quite offended when historians sort of go wading in because many of them do a huge amount of research and yeah. feel like that isn't recognised and credited. Um, you know, and I think we can learn a lot. Also, I mean, linking back to to, to what we're saying about these kind of imaginative processes, mm. the writers of historical fiction are, are incredibly skilled at taking what evidence we do have and imagining you know, a broader story or narrative around it. And in a sense, historians are often doing the same thing, yes, yes. especially if you're working with particularly fragmentary evidence and, and having more conversations with, um, you know, with with the writers of historical fiction about, um, okay, what do you do? What do you do when you've got a, you've got some evidence and you know, but there's a gap and you need to make a leap yes. to make your story work? 
we may come to different conclusions to uh, how we want to do it to to, to 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 those writers, but we should certainly be talking to each other more uh, more about these things. So I think it's a fruitful. Um, I think there's there's a lot of scope for a, for a much more fruitful conversation um, between um, the writers of historical fiction and historians, and and a, a lot of overlap in many ways in what we're actually trying to do when we're when when we're studying the 16th and 17th centuries with a very fragmentary historical record. Yeah, for sure. Well, I suppose if um, I've always thought is if people can be relatively transparent or honest in what they're, they're trying to do with writing a work of history or uh, writing a work of historical fiction. It's about giving uh, the people who are engaging with this credit. You know, I think people know that fiction is fiction. Mm. Um, and in the same way that, you know, if you're reading a very detailed monograph about a particular area, like pe- historians tend to be very precise in couching exactly what they know. And you know you're not going to get that in historical fiction, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing there also is that, for me, if it if it raises questions, mm. that's good. That's yes. a good thing. I mean, I'm not expecting a work of historical fiction to, um, you know, get av- absolutely every detail right, mm. and I might not agree with its portrayal of the period, mm. but that is fruitful in itself. Yeah. I think this is one of the things, for example, with with Mantell and, and with the Shard Lake series that mm. I think a good criticism of them from a historian's perspective is they tend to secularize their characters yes which yeah. is which is an understandable decision yeah. for a novelist writing in the 21st century for a largely secular reading yeah. audience if they tried to frame their their characters interiority in in um, you know, deeply religious 16th century frameworks readers would find that you know difficult to read or yes, relate sure. to it so it's a reasonable decision but the fact that they do that and that historians might sort of say, oh, I think this is problematic. That, that to me, is fruitful. Yes. You read a piece of historical fiction, you think, mm, that just doesn't ring true, or that does ring true, or I'm not sure about that. Would it actually have worked like that? Yes. And I want to think a bit more about that and push and see if I can go back to some historical sources and think whether, is Mantel right that, it, that they would have thought about it or talked about it in those terms? Yes. So you know, if, if, it, if it, it can be an exercise that can raise lots of interesting questions and provoke the historian to think, hmm, you know, there's the obvious inaccuracies. It's mm. not that interesting to call those out. But it's yeah. the bits where there's no right or wrong answer. No. But, it's, but the writer has, has made one of these imaginative leaps. Yes. Okay, I, I don't know how they would have felt about this, but I'm going to... On the basis of what I do know, I'm going to say this. And also, I think that makes an interesting story. For the historian then to sort of say, mm, you know, I'm not sure, that doesn't that doesn't quite sound right to me, but I'm going to go back to my own sort of my own methodology and think a bit more about that issue, then that's a fruitful, that's a fruitful engagement. Um, so I think there's 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 a lot of room there for there's a degree of creativity and imagination in both, and we can certainly learn learn a lot from historians and, and historical fiction writers um, asking some of those questions together even if they have different answers to the, those questions many thanks to dr mark halewood of bristol university for chatting with me this week i highly recommend you check out his blog manyheadedmonster.wordpress.com in which he and other historians contribute articles all based around the idea of history from below. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. 
If you have any ideas for future episodes of the Bristol History Podcast, you can email me at bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you've liked the podcast, then please subscribe, give us a good review on iTunes, or join the Facebook group.